Anna Rothschild, and you're listening to Podcast 19 from 538. When I spoke to Dr. Fauci in December, he wanted people to know that help is on the way, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and just hang in there a bit more and we're going to be okay. Dr. Fauci was talking about the approval of the first COVID-19 vaccines. Two months later, more than 40 million Americans have gotten a shot. But you may have seen that there's a new threat. Three new variants of the virus, first identified in the UK, South Africa, and Brazil. Not only might they spread faster, but our vaccines may be less effective against them. If you're like me, the light at the end of the tunnel that Fauci mentioned has started to feel like an oncoming train. Feeling a bit anxious, we here at Podcast 19 set out to understand where these variants came from and whether they'll set us back. What we found is that the path may not be as straightforward as we once thought, but there is good news ahead. SARS-CoV-2 is a virus. and. Pretty much all viruses, once they replicate, once it creates a new copy of itself, there's a chance that it can make a mistake during that process. Dr. Jonathan Lee is an infectious disease physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And some of these mistakes can actually be helpful for the virus in the sense that it can help the virus potentially replicate a little bit faster or it can help it escape from our immune system and our antibodies. This kind of evolution happens for all viruses. Last April, Dr. Lee had a COVID patient who just couldn't clear the infection. This person wasn't a long hauler, someone who's killed off the virus inside them, but continues to have a range of symptoms. Rather, this person actually had the virus replicating in him for over five months. To understand what was happening, Dr. Lee regularly took samples from the patient and then sequenced them. That is, he figured out the whole coronavirus genetic code for each sample. And when we compared the sequences over time, we were fairly surprised at how much his virus was changing and we could see this viral evolution happening uh, in real time. Now, as far as viruses go, this coronavirus is not known to mutate quickly, but Dr. Lee's patient was not a typical COVID case. This patient already had problems with his immune system long before COVID. He could kill off some of the virus, but not all of it. And the survivors could live to replicate and mutate giving Dr. Lee a unique glimpse into the future. We saw a number of mutations pop up over the course of this person's um, infection. At the time, I would say that it wasn't clear to us which one of these mutations was potentially the most important uh, until we started hearing about these new variants that were popping up around the world. And we saw that some of the same mutations that uh, kind of evolved in this one patient was also found as kind of these hallmark mutations in um, the, the variants that were detected in the United Kingdom, in South Africa, and, and in Brazil as well. 
To be clear, what Dr. Lee found were the same mutations evolving independently on different continents. That highlights just how useful these mutations are to this coronavirus. They help it survive and spread. Many of these mutations are on the coronavirus's spike protein. For example, one mutation found in the UK variant may help the virus bind more tightly to human cells and replicate faster. Another mutation found in the South African and Brazilian variants may help the virus escape from human antibodies. But what's the source of these new variants? Why are we seeing them pop up now? Dr. Lee has a few suggestions. One is the fact that the epidemic is out of control in so many places around the world. And when that happens, the virus has more chances to replicate and more chances to develop mutations. Um, I think that it is also possible that the source of the mutation was a immunosuppressed individual similar to the one that we studied last year at the Brigham. Regardless of the source, there is a tried and true way to identify and stop variants like this in the future. The best way that we have of tracking these emerging variants is by uh, increasing uh, sequencing. Because, you know, we're not going to find these new variants if we don't look for them. And it's not a surprise to me that uh, some of these new variants uh, were found in, in the United Kingdom, for example, where they do a much better job of sequencing their, their infections than we do in the U.S. Right now, the United Kingdom, for example, sequences more than 7% of all of their infections. In the U.S., it's less than half a percent. And so in order to uh, track these variants, we have to do a better job and, and to ramp up our sequencing capacities because it's, it's, a, it's a real blind spot for us right now. And you can't fight this, this pandemic half blind like this. While we don't know exactly where these new variants came from, we do have a sense of where they're going. They've each come to dominate cases in the countries where they've been found, and all three have now made their way to the U.S. In fact, the one first identified in the U.K. is on track to become the dominant variant in the U.S. by March. There is some evidence that the U.K. variant is more lethal than the original strain, and scientists say it's more transmissible. I think that it's really important to um, recognize that we're still collecting data on this. Professor Anne Sheehy is a virologist at College of the Holy Cross. The variant first identified in the UK may be up to 40% more transmissible, I think certain studies have found. What does that number actually mean? Can you break that down for us? The way that some of those studies are done is through using this very effective contact tracing. And if you look at uh, an original SARS-CoV-2, that's not a variant. You can say X number of people in my ring around me after I got infected, X number of people also got infected. Let's suppose for the original virus, X equals 10. That's 10 people in the ring around Professor Sheehy who got infected. If you do the same analysis for one of these variants, now 13 or 14 people in that ring get infected. Now, whether that number is actually going to stay there um, is somewhat controversial, right? We, we may find that after we do more studies, that transmissibility is actually maybe not quite that high. This is sort of a first 
pass estimation of increased transmissibility. Increased transmissibility means more people will get infected, which means the number of deaths will go up. So there's that. That's concerning. If it's increased transmissibility and more people are infected, then that is increased possibility for the virus to continue to mutate. So you're giving it a license to continue this evasion of our efforts to contain it, both with a vaccine and ourselves with our own immune system. So increased transmissibility may not be dangerous in the short term, but over the long term, you don't want to give this virus any additional opportunities to continue to mutate. Already there are concerns that certain variants are more resistant to our vaccines. There was a flurry of news recently about South Africa stopping its rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine because it wasn't effective enough against the variant now dominating there. None of the variants are going to be zero on all of the vaccines. Even with a decrease in the effectiveness of the vaccine, it is still going to bias that much needed time, right? And in a race, it's all about the time. So what this may mean is that we can't use the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa. Maybe we have to use one of the other ones because they're all being delivered differently, which to your immune system matters. In fact, early evidence from lab experiments indicate that both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines will likely be effective against severe disease from the UK-identified variant. And both companies have started developing updated vaccines against the South African-identified variant. Other companies are targeting different, non-spike viral proteins, so even if the spike mutates again, the vaccines will still work. But those are still a ways off. I spoke about the development of these updated coronavirus vaccines with Dr. Anna Durbin. She's a professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and has led clinical trials for both the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines. So how quickly could we develop a vaccine against a new variant? In a day, in two days. The timeline for getting an updated coronavirus vaccine against these new variants could be much shorter because developers just have to tweak the genetic sequence that codes for the spike protein, since that's where the mutations are. Think of it like installing a software update rather than buying a whole new phone. My guess is you're going to see some kind of clinical trial within the next couple months. Would the regulatory process itself be any different? Yeah, it'll be different in that it will be markedly simplified. That's not to say there won't be regulation. Companies will have to show their updated vaccines have the same effectiveness as the original vaccines, that they can protect against disease. If they can... There's no reason to believe that the safety of those two vaccines would be different. Dr. Durbin thinks the regulatory process for new COVID vaccines would be similar to how we update the flu vaccine. Every year, we get out our crystal ball and say, okay, which of these strains do we think are going to be circulating nine months from now? Then companies manufacture vaccines for those flu strains. To test the new vaccines, they'll take a small group of people, generally it's fewer than 100, and they'll vaccinate them and they'll take their blood and they'll see how good the antibody titers to that particular influenza strain are. And then they'll say, okay, this is immunogenic enough. You're making enough antibodies. We can release this vaccine. The only thing that differs from year to year is the actual virus. 
but the process is always the same. They're using the same manufacturing plants. They're using the same equipment. They do a lot of, of testing to make sure that, you know, it's completely sterile. Nothing has been introduced during that process, but the process itself is the same. And because of that, it's easy to go from one to the other. For COVID, if we're swapping out the genetic sequence, we could, in theory, as long as everything else stays the same, do something very similar exactly. to, to get these tweaked vaccines or next generation vaccines out. Exactly. Okay. If they were to change something else, then that may require more extensive testing. If, for instance, Pfizer found a way that you didn't have to store the vaccine at minus 80, if they found a way you could store the vaccine at room temperature, but that changed the process, they would have to test it more extensively. And FDA would let them know. They would work cooperatively with the FDA to determine how extensive those tests needed to be. In the meantime, some people may think that it's not worth getting the vaccine until the shot fully protects against the new variants. But according to Dr. Durbin, that's not the case. I don't think the variants are going to be as problematic from a public health perspective First of all, the South African variant is not worldwide. It's not widespread. Second of all, if you can vaccinate and um, take, for instance, disease from severe down to mild, you've made a great public health impact. And the more people you have vaccinated, it's going to make it harder and harder for those viruses to spread, even the variants. So if you have very high vaccination rates, what we're going to see is reduction in the numbers of hospitalized cases and severe cases, even with the South African variants. If everybody gets vaccinated, you'll have enough immunity that you won't get severely ill, but you might get a cold. At the end of each of my conversations this past week, I asked the scientists if it still feels like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, despite the new variants. Here's Professor Sheehy. We are seeing light. I mean, I think we will be living in concert with SARS-CoV-2, unlike SARS-CoV, SARS-CoV-2 forever now. But our new way of living will feel very comfortable, probably when you hit somewhere in the you know, 70 to 85% range, where there will be enough people vaccinated where we're not seeing anywhere be overwhelmed with cases. So am I concerned uh, when it comes my turn to get the vaccine that it won't cover everything? Sure, but every year I go for my annual influenza vaccine and I know that they have to choose what strain they're gonna target back in April and I'm getting the shot in, you know, December. It's the same kind of, um, balancing act that we're used to. And so I have every confidence that um, we will be able to manage this. Dr. Durbin feels the same way. I'm very optimistic we're going to have four to five vaccines licensed here in the U.S. probably by April. I think we're going to have Johnson & Johnson very soon, early March. I think AstraZeneca is very close behind. We have Novavax ongoing now, and that's the next one to come out. And I think that is going to free up the supply greatly. The next hurdle is getting these vaccines evaluated in children so we can vaccinate kids. And I think we're not going to see um, kids being vaccinated probably until the fall. But uh, hopefully we'll, we will be at the end of the tunnel, out of the tunnel, and hopefully somewhat getting back to normal by then. After close to a year of this pandemic, it's sometimes hard for me to cling to optimism. 
But talking with these scientists was a bit like getting an optimism booster shot. So do your part and get vaccinated when you can. And I'll be sure to keep you all posted on any vaccine booster news the minute I hear about it. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Side note, I actually used to work in um, a, a genomics lab. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. Doing uh, like ge- like parasitology research. Oh, I love um, parasites. <laughs> me too. <laughs>